If you get in a car and drive about an hour and a half east of Los Angeles, you'll end up in a quaint little community called Miraloma. Its name translates to View of the Hill. And that's really apt because the surrounding area has gorgeous riding trails up into the mountains, plus these wineries and parks. It seems like the perfect place to unwind on a weekend getaway. But Miraloma hasn't always been known for its view of the hill. When it was founded, the town was called Wineville. And Wineville had a dark secret. Something so troubling, the town literally changed its name to get away from its bad reputation. That secret involves kidnappings, murders, stolen identity, and a massive cover-up that tore apart the life of an ordinary mother from Los Angeles. This is the story of Christine Collins. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is International Infamy, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm taking you on a world tour of 15 notorious crimes from 15 different countries. This is our final episode, so I'm bringing us back home to cover a dark moment in United States history, the injustice against Christine Collins. In 1928, her son Walter went missing in Los Angeles, California. Five months later, the police brought him home, only for Christine to insist this kid was a stranger, which raised two questions. First, was this mysterious boy Christine's son? And if he wasn't Walter, then who was he? I have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, I'm Michael Weatherly. And I'm Cody DePablo. We played Agents Tony Donozo and Ziva David on NCIS, one of the world's biggest shows. And now we're doing a rewatch podcast. This is Off Duty with guests like Sasha Alexander. I'm really happy to see you guys, by the way. Eric Olson. By the way, you broke a finger. I lost a nail. <laughs> We've never really done this. Watch and listen every Tuesday on Spotify. Foof. On March 10, 1928, a telephone operator named Christine Collins is at home, probably taking care of her chores between shifts. It's a nice Saturday in the early spring, so the weather's warm, and Christine's nine-year-old son, Walter, walks into the room and asks for some cash to see a movie. 
Christine has to want some peace and quiet alone at home, so she gives him a dime and doesn't really ask any follow-up questions about how long he'll be gone. Now, I know that today that might sound shockingly neglectful, but you gotta remember that back in the early 20th century, it was a lot more common for parents to let their children just wander around unsupervised. In fact, that was the expectation. Kids Walter's age were supposed to be independent so they can work full-time jobs or get married by the time they're 14 years old. That's especially true in their small community. Christine and Walter live in the northeastern suburbs of Los Angeles. They live in the city, but not in the heart of it, and it seems like they know their neighbors and their street is quiet. So Christine isn't too worried about what kind of trouble Walter might get into for one afternoon. But she does worry when Walter doesn't come home that evening. A few panicked hours go by and Christine decides to reach out to the police. And right away, they take Walter's disappearance extremely seriously. Just a few months prior, a 12-year-old girl was kidnapped, murdered, and dismembered. So the people of Los Angeles are really on edge about child abductions. The LAPD does not want a repeat of that tragedy, so they launch a massive search for Walter. They drag Lincoln Park Lake, which is about a mile and a half from Christine's house, and they find nothing, which, you know, is somewhat good news. It means Walter could still be alive. The LAPD is calling in every resource they have to find him. I mean, they're collaborating with detectives in San Francisco and sharing information with private investigators. The team scours every shred of evidence they have, but they don't come up with anything. Christine and Walter's dad both try to cooperate as much as they can, and they even come up with a theory. See, Walter's father is in prison for robbery, and he figures he might have offended some other inmate. Maybe this mystery person finished his sentence, got out, and is holding Walter hostage. But Walter's dad doesn't have a specific culprit in mind, and there's no evidence to back up this theory, so it doesn't exactly give the police a lot to work with. By late April, Walter's been gone for weeks, and the newspapers are in a frenzy. One article in the LA Times summarizes the witness statements, including multiple references to, quote, a foreign-looking man acting in a suspicious manner, end quote. There's absolutely nothing connecting this mysterious guy to the crime, but the press runs wild with speculation. In the 1920s, the media isn't full of stories about sexual predators or serial killers like it is today. The Lindbergh kidnapping is still four years away and nobody can wrap their minds around this disappearance. Like, who would snatch a nine-year-old boy off the street and why? The mystery is so bizarre that papers all over the country cover it. Most of them include pictures of Walter and a call for people to share tips if they see him. And the widespread coverage works, kind of. All sorts of people call the police and say that they saw Walter in a car in Los Angeles or up near San Francisco or in Oakland. One witness even says that he spotted Walter in the back seat of a car wrapped in newspaper like a mummy, which is really bizarre. Nobody can really make sense of his story, so that trail goes cold. In fact, none of the tips produce any useful leads. The police are just hitting dead end after dead end. Which is a problem, because all this coverage is putting immense pressure on the LAPD. 
A lot of papers are implying the police are incompetent. Children aren't supposed to vanish off the face of the earth in a major American city like Los Angeles. Weirdly, though, Christine doesn't seem to be nearly as stressed as the police are. She's still hung up on this ex-prisoner theory, and she figures that any day now she'll receive a ransom letter or some other confirmation that Walter's fine. Literal months pass, and still, Christine insists to her friends and family that Walter has to be alive. She's adamant that someday they will be reunited. And finally, it happens. In August, which is about five months after Walter goes missing, the police notify Christine that her son has been found. He's in the Midwest, but he's alive and safe. He even talks to her on the phone to reassure her that he's okay. The only problem is Christine needs to pay for his ride to Los Angeles. She immediately agrees. The travel costs something like $70, which is like the equivalent of over $1,000 today. But it's worth it for Christine to have Walter safe and sound back home. I've got to imagine that she's ecstatic. The day he finally gets to Los Angeles, she immediately comes to Juvenile Hall to pick up her son. She even brings one of Walter's friends with her so he can have a proper welcome home. As soon as they step into the building, Christine spots this skinny boy that has to be Walter. But then she runs close and realizes this kid looks pretty different from her son. He's thinner than she remembers, and he looks older, too. Like, the past five months have aged him. Plus, he seems a little shorter than he used to be, and there are a few other features that just don't match Walter's. He looks so different that Christine literally doesn't recognize him. And that's when she turns to the police and says, I don't think that is my boy. Coming up, I'll look at whether this child is really Christine's son. Once upon a time, I thought I met Mr. Wright. The only problem, he was a huge liar. You were going out of your mind because you couldn't figure it out. I'm Abby Ellen. Join me as I tell the story of one con man who entangled his lovers, friends, co-workers, family, and me in an identity fraud scheme that stretched all the way to the Pentagon. Season 2 of Imposters, The Commander, a Spotify original from Parcast, premieres Monday, September 13th. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now back to the story. About five months after Walter went missing, in August 1938, an unidentified man, who I'll call Ralph, is passing through DeKalb, Illinois. Ralph pulls over at a cafe for a hearty meal, settles into a comfortable booth, and starts skimming the menu. And that's when he notices something odd at the other side of the dining room. There's a boy sitting all alone. He looks about 10 or 12 years old, and he doesn't seem to have a parent or guardian with him. But that's not the weirdest thing. 
It seems like Ralph can't open a newspaper anymore without reading about a missing boy named Walter Collins. And all he can think is, this kid in the booth looks exactly like the picture of Walter. So he walks up to the table and comments to the boy on the resemblance. Now, it's not totally clear exactly how the boy responds. Maybe he brushes it off and says he hears that all the time, or he might go along with it and agree, yeah, there's a reason we look so much alike. What I do know is, shortly after this conversation, the boy gets in contact with the local police. He says he is Walter Collins, and he just managed to escape his kidnapper, and he wants to go home. Before he knows it, he's headed back to California to be reunited with his mother. Except there's one humongous problem. When he gets to California, Christine says he isn't Walter. She admits that there is a bit of resemblance, but they're definitely different people. And obviously, she would know what her own son looks like. But the police aren't totally convinced. Walter's been through a lot, and he's practically been starving for the past five months. Naturally, he's a lot skinnier, and that's going to make him look different. Plus, this kid insists he's really Walter. He says that he recognizes Christine and the friend who's with her. Captain J.J. Jones can tell that Christine's wavering, so he literally tells her to take the kid home and, quote, try the boy out. Christine's too exhausted to keep arguing, so she just gives in. And to reassure her, the police decide to do a little test. Instead of just letting the boy head out with Christine, a few officers ask the kid to give directions. And he leads them right to his front door. Not only that, but as soon as they show up, Walter's dog apparently runs out of the house and jumps on him and kisses his face. Now you'd figure if this wasn't the real Walter, he wouldn't know how to get home and his dog would definitely be more cautious. So the police figure this is settled, case closed. And it seems like Christine wants to think so too. The boy stays with her for three weeks. During that time, she probably tries to act like things are normal. I mean, I can see her cooking these massive meals in hopes that once Walter fills out a little, she'll recognize him again. But the problem is, she can't let go of this fear that the kid isn't Walter. And if he's not, that means that some stranger is impersonating him, which probably makes her even more unsettled. Now, after what happened the last time she talked to the police, Christine isn't going to just march back into the station and demand they keep investigating. Instead, she does some investigating of her own. She makes a dentist appointment for the boy, and after an exam, the doctor agrees that there's no way this kid is her son. Walter's had a ton of cavities filled, and this boy, whoever he is, doesn't have the same fillings. Plus, Christine has a lot of friends who knew Walter before he was kidnapped, and some of them agree with her. So she takes these friends and the dental records to the police station and shows Jones everything she has. She basically tells him, okay, I've proven this isn't my boy. Now, what are you going to do to find Walter? Christine's evidence seems pretty solid, but that's actually terrible news for Jones. The Walter Collins case is still a massive news story. And if Jones has to backtrack and say that they found the wrong kid, this is going to humiliate him and the entire LAPD. Plus, there are still huge questions that Christine can't answer. Like, if the boy isn't Walter, how did he know how to get home? How did his dog recognize him? And most importantly, why would he lie about his identity? I mean, 
what could he possibly have to gain? It doesn't make any sense. So Jones goes with the most obvious explanation. The problem is Christine. He actually accuses her of trying to pawn Walter off because she doesn't want the responsibilities of being a mother. Obviously, this is an awful thing to assume. Still, Jones thinks maybe Christine didn't mind when her son ran off. Maybe she was relieved. And maybe she bribed the dentist to lie and coerced her friends into backing her up, all as some complicated plot to get rid of this unwanted child. And even if she's not running some kind of con, Christine might just not be thinking straight. I mean, she's been under immense stress for the better part of a year. After six months without her son, his miraculous return might just be too much for her to accept. So Jones insists that the boy is Walter and Christine is just mentally unwell. And then he literally has her locked up. As unbelievable as it sounds, the police actually have this policy that lets them have anybody they want committed to an asylum, even if there's no sign whatsoever that they have a mental health condition. And to be clear, as far as anyone knows, Christine doesn't have any history of mental illness. She spends four days in a psychiatric facility and the whole time she stands her ground. The boy in her home is not her son. She doesn't know why he's lying, but it seems like he's up to something nefarious and somebody has to stop him. For the most part, nobody believes her. Not until a witness comes forward with unsettling new testimony. Around this same time, this woman calls the police to say her 15-year-old brother, Sanford Clark, is being held hostage. He lives on a ranch in Wineville with his uncle, a man named Gordon Stewart Northcott, and she believes Sanford wants to leave, but he can't. The authorities raid the farm, and they find out that Stewart has already fled. But they manage to bring Sanford in for questioning, and that's when they find out that this case is so much bigger than one hostage. According to Sanford, Stewart is a child molester and murderer. He kidnaps young boys, sexually abuses them, and then kills them. His mother, Louise, helps him commit the crimes, presumably because she'd do anything to help her son avoid arrest. They force Sanford to help them too, and he goes along with it because he's afraid of what will happen to him if he refuses. And then Sanford starts getting into detail about all these homicides he's witnessed or helped commit. And he mentions that one of his uncle's victims is Walter Collins. The police learn all of this literally one week after they have Christine committed. This seems like pretty compelling evidence that Christine isn't delusional. She's right. That boy at her home is not her son. But Captain Jones still isn't convinced. For one thing, there's no evidence to back up Sanford's confession. On the ranch, investigators find some human remains and scraps of clothing that could have come from Walter, but it's hard to say anything definitive. So he assumes that Sanford is making things up or misremembering details. And besides, how could Walter be dead when he's safe and sound in Los Angeles? Jones even tries another test to prove the boy staying with Christine is the real deal. He shows him a watch that used to belong to Walter. The kid takes one look at it and says, that looks like my watch. It is my watch. 
It sounds kind of flimsy, but Jones figures the kid wouldn't possibly recognize the watch if he was an imposter. So Sanford and Christine must both be lying. But no matter what Jones says, he can't stop the press from speculating. The day after Sanford tells the police about Walter's murder, the LA Times runs a front-page story on the development. Other papers hop on the bandwagon, and the coverage is so intense, other officials finally start paying attention to what Christine is saying. A handwriting analyst steps in and compares the boy's writing to Walter's, and he backs up what Christine, the dentist, and all their friends have been saying all along. These are different people. And after a couple of weeks, even the kid decides that this has gone too far, and he finally comes forward with the truth. It turns out the boy who police insist is Walter Collins is actually a 12-year-old runaway from Iowa named Arthur Hutchins. Allegedly, his home life wasn't great and then his mom died, so Arthur figured things were only going to get worse. Rather than wait around and find out, he took off. He had this vague idea that he wanted to move to Hollywood and become a movie star, but he just wasn't sure how to get there. And then, while he was eating at a diner in DeKalb, Illinois, a passerby pointed out that Arthur looked like the missing child from California. Arthur realized this was his chance. He could pretend to be Walter and get a free ride to the Golden State. He figured as soon as Christine saw him, the jig would be up. But by that point, he'd be in California and he could figure out what to do from there. But as we know, something incredible happened. Christine didn't recognize him, but the police basically bullied her into taking him home anyway. During those three weeks that he was staying with her, Arthur convinced himself that this was all some kind of game they were playing together. He pretended to be Walter, and she pretended to believe him. But now his web of lies has been exposed, and Christine is more resolute than ever. She still doesn't know if Walter's alive or dead, and she won't find him unless somebody actually does the work of tracking him down. And if the police won't do that, she'll sue them. Coming up, Christine takes Captain Jones to court. Now back to the story. It's more than six months after Walter Collins went missing, and still nobody knows where he is. Christine is furious. Not only did police pressure her to let this imposter into her house, but she's still reeling from her four days in a psychiatric facility. Her whole world has been torn apart, and she knows exactly who to blame, the police. So she files a lawsuit against Captain J.J. Jones. In front of the jury, she lays out everything. All the evidence Jones ignored, the fact that he still hasn't found her son after the better part of a year, and the details of her false imprisonment. Now, that sounds pretty compelling, but Christine has the deck stacked against her in a big way. At the time, society is wildly sexist, more so than today. Christine has already been committed just because the police didn't want to deal with her. On the other hand, Christine has the people on her side. As in 1,000 of them protesting inside City Hall and showing their support throughout the hearing. It's like the public sees this case as a massive miscarriage of justice, the sort of thing that's not supposed to happen in the United States, and they won't be satisfied until Christine gets her due. At the end of the day, Christine doesn't lose the case. 
but she doesn't exactly win it either. The judge rules in her favor and orders Jones to pay her $10,800 in damages. That's more than $160,000 today. But Jones flat out refuses to pay. And Christine can't legally force him to. He actually dies without ever paying up. And that's not even the only injustice here. At the end of all of this, Christine still doesn't know what happened to Walter. Now, I mentioned before that Sanford Clark confessed to helping his uncle Stuart kidnap and murder Walter. But when the police finally arrest Stuart and his mother Louise, they tell slightly different versions of the story. According to Sanford, Walter and his mother used to visit the grocery store where Stuart worked. As soon as Stuart laid eyes on Walter, he knew he had to abduct him. The day Walter went missing, Stuart pulled up in front of his house and coaxed the boy into his truck. He probably didn't even have to persuade him too much. Walter would have recognized Stuart from the store and he would have trusted him. But the moment Walter climbed into the truck, his fate was sealed. Eventually, one of the family members killed Walter with an axe. Depending on who you believe, it might have been Louise or maybe all three of them murdered Walter together. But Stuart never corroborates Louise's testimony. He never admits he kidnapped Walter or that Walter ever set foot on his property at all. It's hard to tell who's lying and who's telling the truth, especially because the police never find any evidence to prove that Walter died on Stewart's farm. For the most part, though, the police seem to agree that Stewart killed Walter, so they don't make any more real effort to find him. But Christine isn't so sure Stewart is the culprit. So... Once again, she takes matters into her own hands. Two and a half years after Walter's disappearance in the autumn of 1930, she visits Stuart in San Quentin prison. During their conversation, Stuart insists he's innocent. He says he never laid a hand on Walter, and sure, he could be lying, but it's not like he has a good reason to. He's literally one day away from execution at this point. This is his last chance to clear his conscience. Earlier, Stewart did confess to multiple other murders, but then he rescinded all but one. So it's not like his testimony is all that reliable one way or another, but he always maintained that he had nothing to do with Walter's disappearance. And Christine believes him. When she walks away from the prison, she fully believes Walter is still alive, out there somewhere. She doesn't know where he is or why he hasn't come home, but she figures there must be a good reason. She holds on to hope that she will see him again, right up until her death in 1964. The fact that she was so insistent for so long is pretty striking. Maybe she just didn't want to face the truth that her son was dead. And honestly, it's not hard to understand why. Given how many people lied to her and tried to gaslight her, of course she would question any news about her son. Her refusal to accept anything at face value helped her stay strong when her entire sense of reality was called into question. And maybe it helped her live with every parent's worst nightmare. Thanks for listening. This is our last episode of International Infamy, but you can find all our previous episodes for free on Spotify. International Infamy was co-created by Max Cutler and Ashley Flowers and is a Spotify original from Parcast, 
starring Ashley Flowers. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of International Infamy was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and Ali Wicker, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Chelsea Wood. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out Crime Junkie and all AudioChuck originals. Chuck originals.